laboring together with God here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. We're going to look at uh, three types of individuals uh, that are uh, involved in the quote-unquote farming process. Here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, would you follow along with me as I read, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. We're going to talk about that laboring together with God and how we ought to be in our labors for the Lord. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your grace. Father, I pray tonight that you would just give wisdom. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I preach your word. I need your help and I do need your strength. God, guide us, direct us, lead us. And help us, Father, to be found faithful. I pray also, Lord, that this would be a time of comfort uh, and encouragement. Be with Brother Cook. Help him. And, uh, Lord, we just love you and thank you. For what an amazing save you are. God, I just commit tonight to you. And, Lord, I ask you to do what only you can uh, in the servants. And so, Lord, help us to see of our duty for you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. All right, some of the objectives uh, as we go through this is recognize how the characteristics of the gambling farmer are far too common in our culture. Uh, understand that the danger of the controlling farmer is not his discipline, but his fleshly self-dependence. And identify the God-dependent self-denial of the trusting farmer that makes him useful to God. So these are the three we'll talk about, uh, the three types of farmers. Respond by identifying areas of self-indulgence in our own life. Respond by turning from areas of fleshly self-control and respond by maintaining a faithful, trusting relationship with God that brings great joy to both you and God. Now, as we look at this here, again, it's a privilege to be counted a labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in 2 Corinthians, would you look with me here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul's humility uh, and understanding that none of us really are sufficient of ourselves to carry out the gospel, to do the gospel ministry, to have a God, you know, a God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded discipleship mentality. And so here in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, to the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? And he's understanding, listen, the responsibility and the cry as listen, he's saying, I'm not sufficient, I, I, don't, I can't do it. You know, it's, it's God. Uh, God does it. And so how do we serve acceptably to the Lord? Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom uh, which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so there is a position of service that is necessary uh, to carry out the ministry with which God has given to us. We also find something. uh, How can we give God our reasonable service, right? Romans chapter 12 Uh, Verse 1 tells us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So before we kind of close out this whole series that we've been looking at, what is God's part in the work? What is our part uh, in the ministry of having, you know, discipling others? What will keep us from a lot of the excesses that have plagued uh, churches through the centuries? 
You know, we, don't, we can't have a passive approach, let go and let God. I mean, it's, it sounds nice, and it, and it, it preaches, you know, preaches well, but uh, we can't uh, have that just let go and let God, nor can we go to the same uh, extreme, the opposite extreme of such a strict discipline uh, that creates such a, 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 a very demanding and harsh environment. That's not what we've been called to do. Uh, we don't want to have the rigidity there. We want to have a biblical balance. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he tells us, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. You know, that's the, the thing that we're desiring for, rightly dividing the word of uh, truth, it says. I, wanna, I don't want to be ashamed when the judgment seat comes. And so as we look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, uh, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So we find here our part is faithful farmers, uh, and God's part is he's Lord of the harvest. Now, uh, as we go through this, God chose to reveal his word uh, and send Jesus, right? The God incarnate to the nation of Israel. And so uh, oftentimes a lot of the uh, analogies that Jesus would use were often very uh, agriculturally based, agrarian, right? And so uh, in the New Testament epistles like 1 Thessalonians uh, and some of the churches there at Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and others, uh, there's a lot of uh, imagery with, uh, with surrounding the idea of farming. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible gives us imagery of planting watering, sowing, pruning, all of the necessary steps uh, in different agricultural communities. But he gives us this here in the scriptures. And so God created all the growth processes where it grows. You need to prune it back. You need to cut it back. You need to harvest it. You need to sow it. Uh, you need to work the, till the soil. All of those things that God has given to us. Now, what we need to understand is the role of the farmer, right? Understanding the role of God and the role of man. So going back to our main passage there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? So there's an understanding that God gave these men to minister to this church, uh, to minister this part. Now our part in this, as you see up there, is that we are to be faithful farmers. Now, a farmer goes out there, uh, and he sows his seed. He tills the soil, he sows the seed, and he's hoping, and if he's a believer, he's praying, Lord, please send the rain at the right time, uh, please send the sunshine at the right time, I would like a nice crop, right? So he's faithful, but obviously, ultimately, the crop uh, is out of his full control. He can't do it. And so the Lord of the harvest, God's part, he gives the increase as God sees fit. So it should not surprise us that uh, we see, you know, encounter the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The farmer has to go out and work the soil. He has to sow the seeds. He has to, you know, uh, figure out who to sell the crop to. There's a lot of things that he has to do. But, you know, that's where, here in verse 6, he says, I have planted. So the apostle Paul is he's doing hard work. He said, I'm planting the seed. But he also readily admits, so then neither is, verse 7, so then neither uh, is he that planted anything, neither he that watereth. 
He's saying man does the hard man does hard work, but the Bible, the product here is all of God. I mean, it's kind of like you know, think about the story of Jeremiah there in the book in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, God told him, "Listen, I want you to preach to Israel; they'll never listen to you." Was Jeremiah faithful? Yes. Was Jeremiah sowing? Yes. And and they're all accountable to him. You know, the nation of Israel, those who heard him, they were accountable before God. They had the truth and they rejected it. So. Uh, it, the, the amount of growth that is there or not there is not, a by, is not a product of how godly or ungodly an individual is. Now, that can, can sometimes be there. But in 1 Corinthians 15.10, going on in just a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 15.10. I do have to say, though, there's times you think, man, Lord, I'd sure like us to, you know, we'd like to grow and we'd like to... You know, be able to see, you know, uh, just reach more people. And, uh, you know, that's our endeavor and our desire to see people saved and baptized and added to the church and, and people growing and learning and, and desiring to, uh, you know, just move on for the Lord. That would be a wonderful thing. The Apostle Paul testifies that he labors. He says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, and yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Jonathan Edwards, he expresses this paradox between God's you know, sovereignty and man's responsibility. He says, we are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some, and we do the rest. But God, but God does all, and we do all. God produces all, and we act all. For that is what he produces through our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are, in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. In the scriptures, the same things are represented as from God and from us. God is said to convert, and men are said to convert in turn. God makes a new heart, and we are commanded to make us a new heart. God circumcises the heart, and we are commanded to circumcise our own hearts. These things are agreeable to that text. God worketh in you both to will and to do, right, of his good pleasure. So we can learn here in the disciple-making aspect of the oversight of others, there's stuff that we are to do, and there's stuff that we are to just wait on God to do. And so we are laborers together, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, our opening text here. That we are laborers together with God, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Understanding this, that when I am doing the ministry and you're doing the ministry, uh, we are doing it with God. You know, I'm going to give my 100%. It's kind of like on a team. Uh, You know, if you're playing on a sports team, you're expecting every player on that sports team to be giving their all. To be giving 100% of their effort to help that team. Now understand, uh, God has chosen to use human instruments Uh, for the reaching of other humans. And thus, the need for our uh, close relationship with God. Now, there's three kinds of farmers. And uh, you see an undisciplined here uh, on the left. It's kind of hard to see. Um, Let me turn off. So you see on the left up there, Uh, undisciplined. And underneath the undisciplined farmer is a gambling farmer. Then you see a disciplined farmer, 
uh, who's a controlling farmer, and then you see a trusting farmer who pleases God. The one on the right, obviously, uh, is the one that is pleasing to God overall. So as we find this idea, frequently illustrates this by way of farming imagery, we find that the word, you know, Luke chapter 8, it presents different types of soil on which the seed is planted. Isaiah 55.10, snow that cometh down from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now, here in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 3, every man's work shall be made manifest, For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So as you think about this, you know, the undisciplined farmer, and we'll talk about what each of these respective men are, each of these respective uh, categories are, but in order to understand our role more accurately, it's better to consider the lessons from these three farmers. Two of them uh, represent wrong extremes. Uh, In short, just to give you a short example before I get into the details of these, a gambling farmer is like a guy who throws some seed on the ground and hopes it makes it, right? He's lazy. He doesn't work the soil. The controlling farmer, I mean, he's got everything to a a T. He's just dotting, you know, he's just so meticulous, almost obsessive, compulsive. He's rude. He's mean uh, and, uh, you know, just harsh. And then the trusting farmer works hand in hand with the Lord. And so... You know, the question is, how can I provide biblical oversight for others by imposing structure and accountability upon them without putting them into a legalistic straitjacket, which dishonors God? So how do I, you know, implement and come over as an overseer, uh, you know, whether you're, you know, as a disciple maker, whether you're a parent, whether you're, uh, you know, any role within the church, and how do you do that in a way when you're leading others to a way that... it's not harsh, but yet at the same time, you're exercising uh, that there's some accountability there. And so if anyone imposes discipline upon the life of another uh, in this day, they're called a legalist. You can't tell me, you know, to do that. Certain legalism is a danger. We must avoid it, and I'm full for that. But the danger in legalism is not the discipline itself. A, a person who is pleasing their self by imposing discipline upon themselves and others can be just as destructive as a person who's pleasing their self by ignoring the discipline of others. So one is a self-discipline, like a self-righteousness. And the other produces a fleshly self-indulgence of a lazy person, a sluggard, if you would. So just a, a brief overview as we look at these. We'll note God's laws of nature and various responses of believers. And so I'll give a little bit here. You see that person there laying uh, on this. This type of farmer, the gambling farmer, he ignores the laws of nature. You know, God created the world. He created, you know, in the fall, uh, there's, there's a harvest time. There's a time to, in the springtime, I'm thinking that they, you know, they work the soil and they're doing it. Maybe I got it backwards. But anyways, in farming, you know, in, typically in the springtime, seems like, you know, when we plant our garden, you're planting the seeds, you're working the soil, you're getting it ready to go through the summer, and then you come to fall time, you can harvest all the crops. You know, and God's, uh, you know, his laws are self-evident. And, uh, you know, you want to get through the summertime with the nice heat, you want to see those crops grow, you want your little garden that you have, uh, I mean, you want it to make sure that you get the crop that you're desiring from it. And so there's some things that are necessary uh, in your labors. 
You know, a farmer cannot forget to sow his seed in the spring and then suppose that in midsummer he can plant real hard. So it's kind of like ignoring the laws of nature. He comes to springtime, ah, you know what, I'll do it in the summertime. So in midsummer, he plants all this seed and says, I'm going to get the crops I want. He's gambling quite a bit on actually getting a crop because if he gets to the part of fall and it hasn't come to the full maturity of that crop and its age needed for growth uh, or bad weather hits or something else, he's sunk. I mean, he's in bad position. You know, he cannot ignore the built-in timetable of the seeds. And, you know, you buy the seeds, they'll tell you how long they need to, to grow to produce a crop and what kind of water requirements and pH and all sorts of things uh, when you buy these, particularly in a commercial-type setting. But, you know, if he, this farmer ignores the moisture necessary for, the, you know, the watering of these seeds and otherwise, uh, he's ignoring natural laws. We also find something else. He is the Proverbs sluggard. Now, I want you to look with me at several places here in Proverbs about this type of farmer. Uh, this is a man who's not doing any work. Uh, and so we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to look at several places here in Proverbs, but uh, Proverbs chapter 24. Verse 30, he says, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof. And the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Get a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as... An armed man. Look with me at uh, Proverbs 10.5, and then we're going to go to one more here. Verse 5 of Proverbs 10, He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causes shame. Letting your crops, you don't go to harvest your crops. And then Proverbs 19, one more verse here, one more passage of scripture here. Proverbs 19, 15, and 16. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. He that keepeth commandments keepeth his own soul, but he that despiseth his way shall die. So Solomon's perhaps out for an afternoon drive, you know, in his chariot, inspecting fields, and he's noticing these laziness. And, you know, kind of there in Proverbs 24, looking out and, and noticing with this one individual uh, whose field is in disarray. Now, this is a field that's not in a fallow year. Uh, it's not in a year where the field is supposed to be empty, but the guy has not taken care of his field. He hasn't dealt with it correctly. He's not, uh, you know, gone out and checked the soil and the content of the moisture and other such things. I don't remember when we were in Saskatchewan and we were staying uh, there with Brother Boyce. He's a pastor out there. And he's a farmer as well. And uh, he was checking his crops and checking the soil moisture and picking, you know, back there in the springtime when we were with him, he was driving to the different crops, noticing some of the weeds that were growing and what he was needing to do. But he was inspecting in preparations for uh, planting the seeds. 
You know, Solomon steps out of the chariot and he walks over to the deteriorating stone wall. He puts one foot upon the wall. It bends over. You know, and he later reports here, you know, he, this man is ignoring God's ways of provision. You know, and it says, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. Back here to Proverbs 24. And uh, as we look at this, that this man's laziness is going to bring him to total ruin. You know, the soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. Proverbs 13.4 talks about that. You know, the soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. It's kind of like, you know, oftentimes there is within welfare, uh, there are individuals who get so comfortable with the government providing for them when they have the full capability of working and they're not working, uh, and, and they're desiring to, you know, they want a really nice place, and they want what the, you know, someone who's worked hard for, uh, and they're desiring it, but they're not working for it. And they have the capability to work. I'm not talking about an individual who has a handicap, but I'm talking about those who legitimately have the physical capability to go out and work, and they don't. But in the same sense, in a spiritual sense, God's saying, listen, it is incumbent upon us as believers to get out there and be sowing the seed to be in there interacting with others. Because if we're not giving out the gospel and we're not sowing for the Lord, you know, uh, Proverbs 26, 13, you can look there. I just put a portion of the verse up there. <clears throat> the slothful man saith, there is a lion in the way. A lion is in the streets. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom, it grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. You know, it's kind of like an individual saying, well, I'm just really not a morning person. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't like to be pushed. Don't push me. You know, I'll, I'll get to it when I, when I get to it. Don't push me. You better back off. You know, when you quit hounding me, then I'll do it. But you try to hold this type of person accountable, and they will give you reason after reason after reason to justify being inactive and inactive for the Lord. You know, and so the slothful man said, there's a lion in the way. Well, there's a real danger there. I couldn't do that. You know, it's kind of like sometimes individuals, I've talked to them, and I talked to them about, you know, being a witness for the Lord. They said, well, I'm just kind of an introvert. I, I just don't do that. <laughs> It doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. God says we need to be a witness for the Lord. You know, as we're interacting with people and, and bringing up the Lord and opportunities to do that. It's, it's not about making excuses about I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, you're a pastor, you have the knowledge, I don't. It's not about that. A primary, primary characteristic of a lazy farmer is that he begs for a second chance when he begins to experience some of the fallout of his slothfulness. And we find here in verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit. I mean, you try to reason with him, and you can't reason. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. So, well, I can't go out, it's just too cold. I can't do farming now, it's... I mean, <laughs> It's too wet outside. This is an individual who indulges themselves in their own comfort, and they're not busy doing things for the Lord. It's all about, well, 
this happens and this arose and this came up and this the, I mean the gambling farmer is hoping they can put the least amount of effort for the, the, the greatest amount of yield, but it doesn't work that way. You know, this is the teen who isn't allowed to pay, play sports uh, because he's failed his academics, and then he begs his school for another chance to prove himself if he would be just allowed to play this season. This is a college student who's had fun and games in school, accumulating a long list of discipl- disciplinary offenses, but then he begs for another chance when he is placed on probation or denied further enrollment. Another one this author gives, he said, it's like the 35-year-old husband and father who's ignored his family while he absorbed himself in his work or recreation. And then he begs his wife not to leave him when she threatens divorce. This is a family that's never settled in church, never joined, and have attended only sporadically. Always an excuse for not attending regularly and not joining. They have marital problems or problems uh, with one another, one of the children. And then they beg the pastor to help them out. It's an employee who frequently uh, displays an unruly temper. And when challenged by superiors about it, seeks for no biblical help. When he's finally fired, then he begs for deliverance, another chance. In every one of these situations, it's an individual who's ignoring the laws of God. They're ignoring God's natural laws. You're sowing what you're reaping. They're not plowing. They're not sowing. They're not tending their fields when the time is right. They always have some reason to explain why they can't get out into the fields. Some reason why they can't get out and serve God and now look for some miraculous intervention. Pray to God. You know, it's kind of like, pray for me. I'm in a really bad condition. Please help me. And as you think about this, really it's, well, you're kind of reaping the actions that you've done. And so coming back here with the gambling farmer, he does have a painful life. Proverbs 21-25 tells us this, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He also, Proverbs 12-27, is an individual that he very well may go out, you know, this, this illustration is a person that goes out hunting, uh, but he's wasteful, he'd be kind of like a poacher. You know, he goes out, he kills, he gets the you know, small amount that he wants. Maybe he gets the head for a big mount, uh, but leaves the body. He doesn't do anything with it. It lets it go to rot. I mean, he just, uh, Proverbs twelve twenty seven. it tells us here, the slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. He doesn't even value what he has. What he might have around the house, what he has... Uh, you know, in, in relationships with others, he doesn't value it. Easy come, easy go, the idea there. And uh, if it's there around him, he's all good. You know, it's kind of like, whoa, it's all about the party. It's all about the fun. It's all about my comfort. It's all about me uh, rather than the labor that I need to give for the Lord. And even labor, you know, for his own family and otherwise. Proverbs fifteen nineteen the way of the slothful man is as in hedge and thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. So he has a painful life. Second of all, he has a wasteful life. You know, in Proverbs eighteen nine, he also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. 
It's kind of like, you know, an individual that comes to work and they expect the paycheck. And if that paycheck isn't there at the time that the employer told them, I mean, they're jumping all over them. But they'll sit on, you know, they'll stay at work and and they'll just waste their time, uh, maybe chatting a little too long in the break room or other things come up or side issues come up while they're on the clock and they know they're not supposed to do it. They're wasting their life. There's also that uh, the gambling farmer has an irritating life. Proverbs 10.26 As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. You know what? You can't depend upon this individual. I mean, you ask them to do something, they say they're going to do it, but then they don't follow through. Uh, that's a very difficult place to be. I mean, if you, you're counting on someone to do, I mean, you have employees, you have, you know, if there's customers or there's other, you know, I- issues, but you ask someone to do it and they don't show up. In the same way, you know, it's kind of like uh, in the church, someone says they're, you know, they're going to help you, but they don't follow through and you're like, ah, I could really use the help, you know? Uh, you know. So these are certain things that come through, but there's an irritating life about the gambling farmer. Uh, he is undependable. His fleshly self-indulgence destroys every field of responsibility. You know, oftentimes, in the irritating life, wasteful life, painful life, uh, they might say, well, I was just too tired. Uh, I was just too fill-in-the-blank. And I I just, you know, oh, I lost track of time or other things. And we understand things happen from time to time, sporadically, but it ought not to be a, a consistent pattern. It's not good to keep giving this gambling farmer another chance, no matter how hard they beg for it. You might have given them some chances, but there comes a point in time, enough is enough, because they're going to waste another chance. They need biblical change. They need to turn their heart towards the Lord. They need to develop that growing, personal, intimate, passionate relationship with God by applying doctrine, reproof, Correction, I mean, they need to receive correction and instruction in righteousness. So until this individual has plowed and planted and cultivated the soil of their heart, they're not get, no second chance is, is warranted. So they have a self-indulgent life, and that's the real problem with the gambling farmer. What about mercy? And uh, we see something here. God is merciful. Why can't you let him have a second chance? Now, and I'm not talking... I was just reading actually last night in our Bible study, our uh, subject was obedience, and it was talking about uh, the child there in Israel, and if the child was rebellious against the parents, the parents were to correct him. If the child wasn't receiving parental correction, a child was taken to the, the leaders there in Israel, and then they would stone him. Now, this is in Israel's time of the Mosaic Law. But the question is, if you're, God's merciful, why can't I be merciful to this individual? I mean, if you've given them opportunities... And they've proven themselves to be the slugger, the gambling farmer. They, should, they need to suffer the consequences. You know, we have an idea that people need to be happy and, and well, you know, concerned about their well-being. But when parents, courts, government, employers, school officials impose some sort of penalty for unacceptable behavior, they're accused of being unmerciful. 
But one of the things that we understand here, God's mercy contains two elements. And the two elements that it contains, number one, is an inward concern for the miserable plight of someone. And the second of all is outward action aimed at relieving that desperate condition, even at great expense to the one relieving the suffering. You can see this kind of uh, compassion that the Lord Jesus would exhibit in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. You know, Jesus, he noticed the miserable plight of an individual in Mark chapter 1. Now, this is not the gambling farmer here. This is an individual. So God is looking at, you know, God's mercy has the two elements here. He's noticing the condition of the individual uh, with whom he's extending mercy. As we said, the gambling farmer has rejected God's natural laws. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 40, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as they had spoken immediately, the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. So Jesus exhibits some compassion and mercy upon this leper. We also find in Luke chapter 7, you know, a widow's son had just died. Her son had just died, leaving her in a destitute condition. Luke seven eleven. It came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and to He delivered him to his mother. Matthew 15, the crowd had been with Jesus for three days without food, and so Jesus feeds them, 5,000, with two loaves, you know, uh, the the fishes and the bread, right? He feeds them there. And uh, seven and a few little fishes in this account here, but he feeds the large multitude. The two blind men, they needed their sight restored. Jesus exhibited compassion upon them. Matthew 20, 30 to 34. And so his compassion extends beyond physical conditions. It extends to the great misery of all, a soul captivated by sin. Now notice me, Matthew chapter 9, going back here. Jesus would challenge his disciples on this. Matthew 9, 36. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So Jesus' compassion here is on those who are bound in sin. You know, we need to be moved with compassion, with a dire strait, of those who are obviously condemned to hell, willing to relieve misery at great personal cost to bring them the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. On another level, though, we're also to be concerned, you know, of the physical dilemma of those around us, you know, especially to them who are of the household of faith, as Galatians 6 discusses there in verse 10. So what is the biblical response to an individual 
uh, you know, the lazy farmer of Proverbs, the, the gambling farmer. What is, you, what is our response to them? And the response is, I need to look at what God is trying to do in their predicament, right? Understanding what God's trying to accomplish in them, you know, if he shows them mercy. Is God trying to uh, help them out of the bonds of sin? Is God trying to, uh, you know, uh, provoke, you know, what is the, if there's a hardship, what is the result of that? Why is it, why could that hardship be? You know, we've already been shown God's mercy by salvation in Jesus Christ. But our most urgent need after salvation is to be rescued from the power of sin in our life, right? There's sinful habits, there's things that we've done, there's family things that happen. All sorts of things bear down upon us, and I need to be delivered from my own carnal flesh to be holy unto the Lord. So God, one of the ways that he extracts us from the power of sin in our lives is to experience the consequences of sin. It's coming face to face with the reality. We were talking about this even last night in this idea of obedience. And someone was mentioning, they said as a young, as a very young child, they had taken something from a store uh, and that parent made them go back in and apologize for stealing that gum or whatever it was. You know, just a young child and the parent did the right thing and, and made them face some consequences of having to own up and speak to the manager and, you know, just deal with the situation. In Hebrews chapter 12, look with me here. And this is the difficult part. I mean, there's someone you love, you care for, uh, they're going down you know, they're the gambling farmer, They've, they're disobeying the laws of God, they're, they're disobeying uh, what they know it to be true, what they ought to be doing. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So the most merciful thing that God can do to us is to chasten us. Painful at the time. But he's delivering us from the end, from the byproduct of a self-indulgent living. And why does he do it to us? In verse 11, to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So a God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded disciple-maker will be more concerned that the disciple is extracted from their self-indulgent lifestyle. They're bent to serve themselves and go in the ways of selfishness and lustful living rather than telling them the hard truth sometimes. You know, it's uncomfortable to mention some things. I remember having conversations with a number of people that I've spoken with through the years here, and uh, sometimes, you know, it involved the fact that they were in a relationship outside of marriage, they were not serving the Lord, and, uh, you know, some hardship came, and I said, listen, you're not supposed to be uh, living with this person outside of marriage, and, you know, they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that they understood. They wanted God to relieve the pain, but they didn't want to make it right with God. And thereby, they had to continue to go down the path that they were on. But God's mercy is not a free-for-all to live however we want. There are consequences. 
and uh, the sowing and reaping of Paulos and Paul and others, they labored hard. And so the most merciful thing that God can do is to chasten us, as we see. And I'm going to finish up here for the evening uh, on this point, but just think about this. We live in a society, and in churches, they're thinking God is merciful, God is gracious, God is loving, and He is. But it is foolish to think that God's not going to deal with us. There, when things, bad things begin to happen in our lives, I, I remember that God did some things in my life. I remember He was telling me before I did it, uh, you know, in my heart, in my soul, and uh, you, I shouldn't be doing that. I, I remember Him working on my soul about certain things I shouldn't be doing, and I would go ahead and do it anyways, and then I would feel the consequences, and then I was faced with a position, uh, faced with a decision. Do I ask God to forgive me, or do I persist in doing it my way? And I'd find if I tried to persist in my own way, it was a pretty uncomfortable path to go. But if I asked for repentance and asked God to help me, there was still the uncomfortable nature of, of the action, but I was able to be restored to that relationship with God. And God was merciful. I'm thankful that God did chasten me, and God did bring a brokenness, because it saved me from my own foolish self. So the gambling farmer, he begins to, as we looked here in Proverbs, he faces these consequences, and he doesn't like it, and he begs for a second chance. And there comes a time when those consequences come. And unfortunately, we have to step back and say, I apologize, I will not be able to assist. Now, if you want to get right with God, I'm here. If you don't want to do right, you're going to have to do it on your own. And that's the difficult part. And so if God's put those around us that are in that position are, you know, we ought to show the mercy of God. If they want to make it right, we help. But if they don't want to get right, and they don't want to do it God's way, then we step back and we say, okay, you're going to do it your way. We're going to let God deal with you. And we step back. We tell them the truth. Do it lovingly, caringly, and uh, just let the Lord do the chastening as only he can. And so let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon this time. And I just trust we'll just have a, a short time of invitation here. When you're done praying, feel free to look up. No music this evening. But I just want to give a time, a short time, if maybe, uh, you know, just for us, if, uh, you know, we can just thank the Lord for the times he's broken us. Those times in our lives where maybe we've been very uncomfortable, uh, we've been miserable, and uh, God saw fit to, to chasten us and make our lives difficult, uh, to bring us to the place, you know what, where we could be saved from our own foolishness. And uh, then we could yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, uh, time of quietness between you and the Lord, and I just trust that uh, we would be uh, effective laborers for the Lord.